You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning or good afternoon, depending on where you are, and welcome to America's Web Radio. And it's time for Agent in Charge, and we've got our Agent in Charge on the line, Mr. Sandy Bostic. And uh, Sandy, there's a little bit of FBI news today. I'm sorry, I was going to say that again, Dave. There's a, uh, a little bit of FBI news today, I believe, with the, uh, I, was it two or three yeah, agents you know, that were killed? So that's, uh, I was kind of, that was on our agenda of the day to talk about. And, and uh, very tragically, I mean, uh, people, if you listen to the show on a regular basis, you know I'm not a big fan of the FBI. And uh, because they just, unfortunately, you know, that they, uh, have gotten so much bad press. I won't say bad press, deserved press for their their roles in all these political investigations and issues that are going on in in D.C. And but like I say, when you get down to the working level, three agents, then uh, you know uh, it's a little bit different ball game. And uh, even though I, I kind of uh, what actually happened, I'll say what well. We'll, uh, I'll tell you what, before we talk about the FBI, let me just bring up the really important thing, and we'll, we'll get into that. I need to pull up my information on that, which I have right here, but I just wanted to ask you, Dave, before we get into a little bit deeper here, do you know what happened on February 3rd, 1959, on this date? Uh, happened back when you were a kid, I guess, huh? In 59? Yes. Yeah. And what happened? This was the uh, day that, go ahead. No, I, I was just trying to think. What? No, what happened? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, it's not a laughing matter. It's a sad day, but this was the day that Buddy Holly and Richie Valens at the Big Bopper died in a plane crash in, in Iowa, I believe it was. And uh, this is the uh, this is the basis for the song by Deborah McLean, uh, uh, The Day the Music Died. And yeah. uh, it's a very tragic day in the music world. You know, I'm, and I'm a musician and I love music and have been playing for years. And, and uh, the uh, especially uh, Buddy Holly and Richie Valens, if you're not familiar who they are, Buddy Holly, of course, is from your old hometown, there in Lubbock. Oh yeah, well, and, my uh, uh, I, I... A, uh, he actually started out his career when he made it big. He was an opening act for Elvis Presley, and uh, was actually really on his way to the top. He had a, a number of a number of hit songs that were very popular, and, and Richie Valens was also a very budding young star. And uh, had come up through as a migrant worker in California, and, and uh, rose to the uh, the level that uh, uh, he was selling records and having uh, having you know a lot of success. And he actually introduced the first. He was the first person to kind of introduce Tejano music, as we call it today, to the uh, to the mainstream. And uh, so uh, they were playing a. They were together on a uh, uh, a tour through the Midwest. It was a winter tour. They were playing uh, playing uh, uh, concerts throughout the uh, the Midwest, and, and we were not the night. Uh, let's see, uh, the city that he was in. I'm trying to remember the name of the town, but uh, he was. Uh, they the tickets were on sale for dollar twenty five. It was a, a, a storm that night. There was a big snowstorm coming in, and, and they had and the, the bucks the tickets were sold for dollar twenty five a piece, and they were not sold out. So obviously it was pretty daggum cold, and so they were traveling on a bus uh, throughout the country and. 
so uh, it was uh, Buddy Holly who came up with the idea. He said, hey, you know, instead of the, the – of course, you know, buses back then were not what they are today. They actually had to stay a regular, like a, a Greyhound type of bus for the day. And cold and drafty, and it was really taking its, its toll on the, uh, the performers. Okay, do you know – uh, let, let, let me interrupt you a second, uh, Sandy. Coming out of the flu, so Buddy Holly arranged for them to fly in an aircraft uh, to their next location. And uh, shortly after takeoff, uh, it, it was uh, Buddy Holly said, Richie Valens, Big Bopper, and the pilot was a 21-year-old fellow by the name of, let's see, I've got him here. His name was Roger Roger Peterson. And uh, they uh, shortly after takeoff, they crashed, and it killed all four of them. And uh, the Big Bopper, I think his time, he only had the one song, Chantilly Lake. Is that right? Yeah. You know, <clears throat> do you know what the name of uh, Buddy Holly's band was? crickets yeah and uh one of the crickets nicky sullivan was from lubbock as well and uh he worked for my dad after uh he well after the crash and uh he he just never could he he'd pick up the guitar and play it once in a while but never uh, never a lot and uh they had special order all of them had spe- or uh, Nikki did, and I don't know uh, some of the others, but they had uh, special order glasses, eyeglasses. They ordered the frames from Mexico, and uh, really? they, they were uh, like black uh, horn rims that uh, sort of wrapped around their their head, sort of not not as not like some of them today, but they were special order. And uh, Nikki um, was, like I said, worked for my dad. Oh. Uh, from, hmm, it would have been like about 1963 or 4, somewhere in that neighborhood. But uh, the reason he wasn't on the plane and the crickets weren't on the plane is <coughs> they were suffering from extreme hangoverism. And, uh, Imagine that in the, in the music world. <laughs> yeah, and they, they couldn't have found the plane with both hands, so that's why... Yeah. And well, uh, let me ask you another question. Sure. So who who else was in that band from Lubbock that was, turned out went on to become a very famous person? Um, God, if you hadn't asked me, I could have told you. Um, I'll, I'll give you a hint. He was Willie Nelson's best friend. Aileen Whalen. Well, yeah, Waylon Jennings. He yep. was a guitar player in the band. Yeah, Aileen Waylon uh, Jennings. So, uh, yeah, along with with your uh, the the other band member you're talking about. And, uh, and he actually said, uh, and this is kind of, it was, they said, Waylon Jennings, uh, he had ended up riding in the bus because there was not enough room on the airplane. And, and, uh, when, uh, Buddy Holly learned that Waylon Jennings would, let's see, let's see, uh, let's see. They, but with the they were getting ready to fly, then, then, uh, I think they, if I remember as the story goes, they flipped a coin and, and Waylon lost. That's how the big bopper ended up on there, if I remember right. So uh, I think that's the way it was in the movie. I, I know, the movie, you never know what's true or what's not. But anyway, so Holly joked as he got on the airplane. He said, well, talk to Waylon Jennings. He said, well, I hope your old bus freezes up. And Jennings joked back. He said, well, I hope your plane crashes. And they both laughed. And it was just, and then they said after that, of course, what Waylon Jennings just uh, felt awful because that was the last thing they expected to happen, you know. But yeah. at the same time, I mean, when you get on a plane with a 20 year old, 21-year-old uh, pilot that uh, doesn't have much experience in a snowstorm, 
good things are, are probably going to – bad things can happen very quickly, I'm sure, has happened here. So, anyway, just an interesting interesting part of history. And, and it was a sad day because they were fantastic performers and, and had great songs, and, and they were really uh, on their way to becoming huge success. And, and uh, one of the things that I always appreciate about Buddy Holly – too is that you know he he struck a deal with uh, uh, Leo Fender with the, the Fender Guitar Company. He was one of the first people to kind of endorse a uh, a product like he did. He so he played the Fender Stratocaster uh, pretty much every time I've ever seen him. Any time I've ever seen uh, a footage of him or pictures he's playing, he's playing the Fender Stratocaster, which is one of my favorite guitars. I own a few of them, and uh, so uh, you know, sad day, interesting day. But like I say, a double. I think it's a double Clint. Clinton, those names that had the song uh, "American Pie," but they said that's the yeah. one song that made him a millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> you know, eight, eight minutes long, and, uh, and he covers pretty much the whole story. It does. So anyway, so that's just history today. So now let's get back to history. Yesterday, as you were talking about the FBI shooting, and uh, and so yes, that was unusual. I mean, but. Okay, so the FBI agents, and, and I say, I, I definitely we you know send our condolences to the families of the agents uh, who were killed, and their names are uh, Daniel Daniel Alpin and Laura Schwarzenberger, and so and then there are three other agents who were shot. What happened uh, is we call this knock and announce. Uh, no knock warrants. Okay, you have to actually. If you are you familiar with a knock and announce and a no knock warrant, Dave? I mean, it's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. I understand them, and uh, you know, we okay, had a so, we had a trouble. So no knock warrant is is when you know you have credible information that uh, that that it's going to be dangerous inside. There's a good chance somebody's going to get hurt, and so you don't knock. You just bust in the door, and you come through several entrances, and you always have a plan going into these search warrants because they're extremely dangerous as you see right here but at the same time you know this uh i don't i don't know the details on what the fbi was doing i, I didn't even realize that they were working child pornography cases that usually fell to my agency homeland security investigation we did the majority of those and uh we had big task forces and now at the same time now the fbi has the legal authority to work cases like that so I guess they were picking up uh, down in Miami, and, and they obviously were probably had a crew. But you know, these uh, there's so much of this that goes on: the child pornography, the child molestation. That you know, there there are teams all throughout the United States, Homeland Security, FBI, uh, local task forces that are dedicated just to working these type of cases. And so they do a lot of search warrants, a lot of search warrants, and a lot of times it's every other day. Because there's such a high uh, concentration of people in this country today that are involved in all this uh, pedophilia and the various levels of it. And so complacency is, you know, this this looks. They said they knocked on the door. The uh, the uh, uh, not the defendant, because like I say, you're not guilty until you're proven guilty. You know, and in this case, the suspect uh, he waited for them. He saw them coming. I don't know how he knew they were coming. But he armed himself with an assault-style rifle, as they say, and I don't know what the weapon was. That's what the, that's what the Miami Herald, uh, Miami uh, Herald, right? Miami Herald is saying. And uh, but anyway, as they approached the door, well, they were in a straight line, which is something you should never do when you approach a house. It was the, it was a knock and announce warrant. Uh, to get a no-knock warrant, you have to have permission from the judge. It has to be in writing 
on the actual affidavit for the search warrant and on the search warrant. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to second guess what happened. It's very tragic. And But here again, you know, that's what I, I, we talk about over and over again on this program is having a plan. And uh, and I'm not trying to discredit the FBI in this regard because it was a tragic day, but you got five of your agents shot. And uh, that never happened to us. And uh, now we've lost agents throughout my career. I never lost any personally, but our agency would lose quite a few. And we lost, we've lost more agents than the FBI has. And but, but mostly it's because we worked, we worked in you know really high uh, drug trafficking areas uh, where there was a lot of violence going on, and just the, the sheer numbers catch up. And so, uh, but this also can happen, of course, when you're serving this many warrants on, on child pornography and pedophiles. And so, as I say, it's a daily event in every city in the United States, just about. And so, uh, just want to talk about having a plan. And like I say, when we would, when we would serve these warrants, I've uh, been on several of them. I was never actually a supervisor of a child pornography, uh, uh, task force, but I, as a young agent, I would go on, uh, lot of search warrants with him because we'd have the there were only two people in our office in Baltimore uh, that were actually working child pornography at the time and uh, and so they had to have a crew of people go with them so we'd take turns going with them on warrants and I can go and I can go all day long telling stories about the uh, the different uh, warrants that we executed things we found and how crazy they were and how sick they were and but I won't go into that but I, but the thing is we knew we treated every one of these people because they they're 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 mentally ill. There's no two ways about it. It's a mental illness, and uh, and so that you know there it's a crime of passion. They call it too. It's not it's not a. There's very little money in child pornography, or there's not, well, a lot of money in the child sex slave business and, and human trafficking children. But as far as the actual child pornography, there's practically no money at all. So we we um, that a crime of passion. Sandy, and, on this and, point, and, we're going to need to take a... crime of passion is, is an emotional crime that people... It gives Sandy, we need to take a break. And so these people are usually... Uh, there's no way to judge what their state of mind is going to be when you show up. And so if I can just look at this from the surface and I can see that the fact that they got five people hurt, uh, two killed and three hurt, is that, that you know, they was probably pretty commonplace... They should have been stuck with a better plan, and uh, the lesson that we learned years ago is you scatter your people out, and you never Sandy, we need the door, because he actually shot through the door and got all five of them. Sandy, we so, need to uh, take a break on that. I can guess that, but I just want to say, hey, we're sorry this happened to you guys. Uh, everybody's going to learn from from what happened here, unfortunately. It, it takes something like this sometimes to wake us up and uh, get out of our common uh, practice of doing things, but once again, you know, Sandy, planning is everything, especially. Go ahead. We need to take a break. And uh, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Sandy finishing his story right after this. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. 
Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. The disease of addiction is a... You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the uh, Agent Charge Hour here on America's Web Radio, where we seek the uh, truth and nothing but the truth. And we have a lot of commentary, and, and uh, Maggie's out today. And But normally when when uh, it's Dave and I and Maggie, they say, I thought everybody you have the three nicest know-it-alls in the country here discussing current events and things that have happened and are happening and have happened and will happen. So uh, before the break, Dave, you and I were talking about this FBI uh, warrant where uh, two agents were killed and three were, were injured. And, and, uh, and I'm kind of looking at it from the law enforcement perspective, but during the break, you and I were talking about a uh, my old uh, special agent charge when I became a new supervisor. His name is Jerry Robinette, and he was in San Antonio and prior to uh, Jerry Robinette um, uh, becoming a supervisor. He was a special agent from U.S. Customs Treasury and that became part of Homeland Security of HSI and he was a uh, serving a arrest warrant with the same similar situation, arrest warrant on a white collar criminal, a customs fraud case in Houston and uh, they knocked on the door, same situation and uh, unfortunately Jerry was wearing his uh, his bullet, his body armor, bulletproof vest. But the guy stuck a he answered order three seven magnum revolver in his in his hand and shot Jerry right in the chest twice, I believe. And Jerry survived it. And uh, but like I say, these are things that that we learn from. And uh, and then too, and and, uh, and it, it just translates so much into into regular civilian life that you just always got to be on your toes because you know people are. are as we talked about you see it in the news, you see it in the. The statistics are coming out. Crime statistics: thirty, thirty. Uh, see, homicide rates in all the major cities in the United States up, are, is up now almost thirty percent. We're seeing a, a, an increase in in, uh, in, in t- intolerance to crime, and so you just you know be careful there, folks, because there's all these these people like that out there that won't think twice about shooting you and doing something to you, and so. So anyway, so anything else we want to add on on the FBI thing, uh, Dave, that you can think of? Uh, not offhand, no. 
All right. Well, so anyway, so let's kind of move on to some more current events here. And, uh, and I, I, we want to at some point, and we're going to do this pretty, uh, hopefully before the end of the show, we're going to, I want to get back and focus on the Biden's, uh, on the uh, Burisma and the Ukraine and the Russian situation. I've been studying this case, and, and I want to, in the second half, we're going to kind of talk about that and kick it around. But this, uh, during this uh, segment, I want to talk about uh, three things that really kind of bother me right now. These are Biden's executive orders that he's, he's uh, signing now on uh, immigration. And this is Americans should be very uh, attuned to this and paying attention to this because this is another situation that's about to get out of hand and it's going to increase crime. As we head back in, too, you know, we, as we come out, for, we're finally at a point where we, our streets are getting safe again, and now we're headed back where we came from. But anyway, the first uh, executive order that uh, I believe it was day before yesterday that, that I don't call him President Biden. I still don't believe he was he was uh, elected uh, properly. That he he came in through a uh, that he admitted it himself, you know, and uh, in a former speech. But uh, so anyway, one of Biden's uh, first. Uh, executive orders is to form a task force is what he's talking about to study go in and study and reunite detainee families together that are currently being detained awaiting deportation or, or you know adjudication of their immigration hearings and so what people don't understand about this and i know this because during the uh, uh four years i guess uh, about three years I'm trying to think what years it was. It's like 2009 to 2011. I was a uh, with Internal Affairs in San Antonio. And I talked about this on previous shows. That one of the uh, one of the things that we investigated with our we were uh, with Internal Affairs. I'm a Homeland Security. I was a Homeland Security special agent, and uh, but we would be detailed. You'd do a three to five year detail with Internal Affairs if you were selected. And I was selected, and then you uh, you also and not only do you investigate homeland security investigations, you so you, you investigate ICE uh, enforcement removal operations. There's a number number of uh, of agencies that fall under that uh, umbrella of uh, they call it OPR Office of Professional Responsibility for DHS. And so I was a member of that team, and and one of the things that we investigated on a very regular basis were in the detention centers when there would be a sexual assault. Or there would be an assault. Okay, someone would be injured. Uh, there would be a uh, uh, inappropriate relations between the uh, the prison staff and the detainees. Anything at all that might be a, a criminal or a uh, against policy offense, if it was reported into, as we call it, an allegation, that we would investigate them. And uh, this is, goes back to 2008 when Obama, in his, uh, it was still in office, of course, and I believe uh, his uh, in that three-year period, but. Even as far back then, okay, there, there was a there's a detention center in Pearsall, Texas, that, in, that that we would investigate on a normal on a regular basis, and that's all it was was a family unit, okay. So in other words, people are not. This is this is some more false news and more false propaganda being put out there. You got to really look at this. So that this this does not happen. It didn't happen, especially during the Trump administration when I did my second tour. What I retired from El Paso when I was in charge of OPR in the El Paso area, you know, we have, there are detention centers, that's all they have are family units in there. But these are real family units, okay? So what 
what where the where the gray area is. I mean, and these 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 detention centers they're set up like little cities. They are. They have churches. They have stores in there. They can buy stuff. Families all together in, in their area in a certain area. They're not even held in. They're not even held behind bars. They have like a, a little apartment they stay in. And but these are proven families. In other words, these are people that were really brought kids over. They were really married or not married, but these they had children. This has not been going on. They haven't been tearing children from their parents' arms. Okay, where that happens is when you have fraud and you have these people that are bringing over these children. They get caught. And they're bringing them in here to either sell them in the uh, sex trafficking uh, uh, market or in the uh, forced labor, for the most part. And so I just wanted to set the the the, the uh, the record straight on this, this is a completely worthless executive order because it's already been taken care of. He's just trying to come up with a way to defund ICE to to uh, make his handlers, as I called him, okay? Uh, I don't think he, he's ever had a, an original thought in his head, but uh, he's just trying to appease those that he owes as far as getting him into the White House. And so... Uh, so I just want everybody to understand that particular executive order, it's, it's bull, it's propaganda, don't buy off it, it's not going to amount to anything. And so it's just something that they're putting out there to make the Trump administration look bad. And on top of that, under when I came back in my last two years, I mean, the they had actually made the facilities, by the time I left, the facilities for the families were improved a lot. They were made nicer, and then they expedited them, they got them out of the country faster, and so... Once again, you know, we're, there, there's no truth of what you're seeing coming out of the Oval Office, so don't take it seriously. Any any thoughts on that executive order, Dave? <laughs> you know, I don't know where truth is anymore, certainly not in the media, certainly not with the Democrats. And, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to know who's – if we didn't have a show or a show like this and other shows that do – clear the records and uh, if we were to make a bet my bet would be that uh, I doubt that Biden's ever been to one of those facilities and wouldn't know offhand anyway <laughs> well I'll say this I saw this as well okay when under their uh, uh, when, when, the, when Obama was in office okay I have seen those locations where you see the pictures of the kids that are being held behind this like chicken wire, you know? Yeah. They're just in there like prisoners. Those existed under him, okay? Those did not exist. That, 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 they was, that was passed over to the Trump administration, and they quickly went in there and they put a stop to that. But the best way to get around that is they expedited getting all these people out of the country. And so, like I tell everybody, you know, the, the people don't realize how much it costs to keep a, a illegal alien in detention, and uh, when the last figure I saw was around two hundred dollars per head. By the time, but most of the prisons they put them in now are uh, they're privately owned, run like geo facilities. That's uh, one of the, the biggest uh, uh, private uh, detention centers, you know, companies in, in the in the United States now. But uh, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's the, the the cost of keeping these people, it's, it's unbelievable. And you just do the math on that. If they're in, in the United States for over a year, I mean, you, you, there's, there's a lot of hotels that, uh, that are a lot cheaper than that $200 a night. Yeah. <laughs> so you just do the math. It costs us a taxpayer a lot of money to keep these people in detention before they're sent back to where they came from. So... Uh, so to so move on, okay, so now the, the next one is uh, he wants to uh, 
he's, he's done away with the uh, uh, asylum seekers. Uh, one of the smartest things Trump did as far as asylum seekers goes is he said, yes, you can file for asylum in the United States, but you have to wait Mexico or some other country until we we can prove, investigate and prove that it's credible. It only makes common sense because, as everybody has heard, you know, when a person comes in here and, and claims asylum that they're being prosecuted or persecuted in the country for religion or or whatever their, their excuse is, you know, as soon as they grant them a, a court hearing, which is usually, I've seen these, I've seen, I've seen asylum hearings come up, uh, be put off as long as three years with the initial hearing. And uh, so when they, when the judge releases them on their own recognizance return for their asylum hearing, well, of course they never come back because there's nothing going to be proven. And then once they get inside the United States and, and get, you know, get, uh, Established, uh, you know, thousands, a thousand miles away from wherever it was they were, they were, they applied, applied for asylum. And of course, you know, you're never going to see them again. And so, w- once again, here we go. We're going back to the, we're going back to where we started from. And, uh, and this is something you really need to bring up with your, with your Congress people and uh, people in your district and tell them, hey, we don't like this. And if you guys don't do something about this, you know, we're going to make sure you don't get back in office. And so, you know, we're going to vote you out of there. And so uh, that's the second thing. And, of course, then the, the worst thing is, along the same lines that's just ridiculous is he stopped construction on the wall. Now, why would you stop construction on the wall? You know, when the money's already there, it's going well. So, fortunately, I, I think that, uh, I'm trying to remember, I think that uh, President Trump had 400 miles up. Does that sound right, Dave? Yeah. A border wall? Right. Yeah, so... A significant amount, and hopefully they got it up in, uh, enough in the uh, in the high uh, intensity trafficking areas that they can kind of shut it down. But what the wall does too is that you know they're they're, they're hard to get around. I mean, if you've ever seen one, they're really a formidable structure. I, you know, even in my prime, I don't think I could have ever gotten over one, and without a lot of uh, uh, mechanical devices and help from some other people. And uh, but they do; they are an obstacle. And, uh, and it pushes the smuggling to a choke point where it makes it much easier to police. In other words, we have a huge border. And so it pushes these, all the folks that are trying to come across, not just illegal aliens, but also narcotics. And so it makes it easier and much more effective to, to, uh, police our borders and keep our streets safe. So I, I've used this example over and over. And in one of our first shows, we talked about this, uh, when I was in El Paso, uh, one of the safest cities I've ever been in. And how? Why is El Paso a safe city? Like we we talked about, it, it has probably the best border wall in the United States. And uh, and if if, you, if you're familiar with El Paso, 20 years ago, uh, even less than 20 years ago, 10 years ago, before they finished their wall, it was a violent place because the uh, the Juarez cartel. There was a continuous war going on in the war between the Zetas and the Juarez cartel, and uh, and they were killing people left and right, and the violence spread over into El Paso where. You know, uh, our informants and DEA's informants were being shot, you know, coming out of their homes and, and just all types of craziness was going on. When they, when the wall was constructed and finally put up in the force, we now, it's like I say, it's one of the safest cities you can be in the United States and it's hard to believe, but it really is. If you don't, if you, if you have a chance to go to El Paso, it's a beautiful place too and a very, uh, affordable live. You know, Fort Bliss is there and there's good people there. And, uh, so, uh, the wall works and it's a shame that, uh, you know, like I say, Biden just he can't seem to see the common sense of any things that the former administration did. Sandy, so, we need to take depressing, another break. But like, go ahead, Dave. I'm sorry. We need to break. Okie doke.
Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back, folks. We're going into the uh, last half of the Agent Charge Hour here on America's Web Radio. And uh, Dave and I are discussing mostly me because my, uh, my, my partner in anti-crime is, was out today, and so you have to listen to me a lot more than, than you probably should have to. And, and uh, But anyway... Uh, we're talking about the uh, these executive orders that has set everybody uh, on ear. You know, as far as if you're if you're a Democrat, I guess you're real happy right now. If you're not, then uh, you know you're like me. You're thinking, you know, what's what are we going to do? And and, uh, and so, and at the end of this, we're going to also talk about this. Okay, the question to put to me: Okay, you identify all these problems. What's your solution to fix it? So, in the last uh, last few minutes of this, we're going to talk about that. You know, as we close out the hour. And, uh, but I want to talk now, just, uh, just kind of, just to, to finish up on these executive orders, and we're going to start talking about the, uh, Ukrainian and, uh, uh, Russian, uh, fraud, as I call it, uh, corruption that has been, uh, misreported or not reported by the, by the press. So, working that way, but just real quick, I just, uh, just an update. We talked about last show about the Keystone Pipeline. And, uh, how it's not shut down. Okay. In other words, there's oil still flowing through the Keystone Pipeline to refineries in Texas, uh, from all across, all, all the way down from Canada, come in through West Texas and through Oklahoma and, and North Dakota. What was shut down was a segment that was under construction that would have increased the flow. And, uh, it would go down through North Dakota and, uh, Kansas and, and Nebraska. And so, uh, as of right now, what their estimates are showing that that, that shutdown of that construction in Canada, the United States has cost 60,000 jobs. So in less than the first, you know, in the first month, uh, our, uh, our, uh, Joe Biden has managed to, uh, you know, put 60,000 people, I guess, on, on welfare unemployment now. And so, and then, and then also, okay, then also there was news came out today that, that, uh, the, you know, the Bidens took money from a company called NOS. And uh, NOS Communications, and uh, they are, according to Eric Snowden, who you know, I sure wish that uh, that uh, President Trump had pardoned him. Because the more I study about Eric Snowden, the real more I realize that you know he was pretty much a patriot, and what he did was re- he didn't do, he did not betray us in the way that a normal uh, uh, anti-American, non-patriot person would. He was just exposing the government for the corruption that was in there. And Biden was taking money from this NOS Communications uh, on all different levels. And what they do, NOS is a company that does they 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 finance, use, and and sell software that is used to go into 
computer systems, hack into them, and as we talked about before, uh, place algorithms in there to uh, track people, uh, eavesdrop, and, and uh, NOS communications out of Las Vegas. And so just, you know, that's just a point of interest there that something else that could be looked into. So if you don't think they have their, their if you don't think they have their claws into them, Dave, what do you, what do you call that? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think uh, you may have heard later than I did. I, this was as of uh, early this morning that Biden had signed 47 executive orders. That's absurd. Yeah. That's and absurd. It, it may says, be more than he, that. He said he's not passing legislation. He's just, uh, what do you say? He said, I'm getting rid of bad, getting rid of bad policy. Yeah, well, uh, he's looking more and more like a dictator, too. He is. He is. So, yeah, no, that's, uh, and, and, and here's the thing. I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, this, I, everybody else, everybody who voted for him, have you heard people there in Atlanta or is anybody expressing, as they call it, voters' remorse right now for having huh. voted for him? Nobody wants to admit, and and what we saw here was not many people voting for Biden, but voting against Trump. And yet, you know, we supported Trump from the get-go and uh, personally think he did a hell of a job. And uh, Biden's yeah, destroying just, uh, us. But like I say, yeah, I mean, it's, there. I have talked to people around here that have said, you know, we didn't know what this guy was all about, and we thought that he was going to unify, as you know, and, and he's done the total opposite. So, yeah, there are people I've talked to that are there saying that, you know, man, I wish we could have our, have our vote over again, you know, and of course it's too late now. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, but anyway, so as we continue on here, I do want to kind of bring this up because this is interesting, and, and uh, I look at this uh this uh, case, the uh, Burisma case and the Russian case, and it's all tied in together. And uh, on the surface, I look at this uh, like a, I look at it from a money laundering investigative perspective. I look at it trying to see what uh, what happened here and and, uh, and how they, if there is a crime, like say, because if, if there is not a crime, then uh, then I want to tell you. I mean, if you can't find evidence of the crime, then then uh, I'll be the first person. You know, the truth is truth. I've always said the truth is in the numbers, and the truth is in the evidence. And so, but I'm looking at. So, let's go back in the previous show where we talked about Joe Biden was paid nine hundred thousand for lobbying uh, fees for the Ukrainian. Uh, company Burisma. And so the problem, he has paid this from Burisma. And so this goes back to when uh, he was still in office in 2014. So I'm looking at some of the uh, information here. And the first thing that strikes me is this. The guy that, that this kind of, this is, this, this allegation is made by a, a Ukrainian. He was a, a former uh, uh, board member from from the Burisma group. His name is Andre Durkach. Durkach, that's how you say it. And uh he claims that they paid Joe Biden $900,000, okay? And so in the first thing everybody said, well, you know, we have to see the evidence on that. But the first thing that strikes me that's odd about that is because 900000 is not a common number. I mean, if, if it wasn't true, okay, like we talked about before, you know, lies fall apart because they're not based in fact. And it's easy to tear one apart. But when something is the truth, and then there, the facts will stand on its own, and it will support it, and the information is there, and obviously. But, this is, but like I said, the thing that makes this unusual is that when I would see allegations in the past of people laundering money, 
being receiving corrupt money, it would always if it was a, it was if it was a false allegation that couldn't be proven, or somebody trying to get even with someone, which we saw quite a bit in internal affairs, then uh, it would always be a rounded number, five million, you know, two million, and uh, but you know when you see this nine hundred thousand, that's an off number, okay. That's that's a number that somebody hasn't made up. That's a number to me. When I look at it, in order, there's enough there's enough uh, circumstantial evidence there just from looking at the claim is that uh, this is a probably a real figure. Okay, and so as we go to Act Three here and we look at this, let's see. We talk about see this. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna read from this was a. Uh, this was uh, from Mr. Durkheim himself. This was a transfer of Burisma Group funds for lobbying activities, as investigators believe, personally to Joe Biden through a lobbying company. Funds in the amount of $900,000 were transferred to the U.S.-based company Rosemount Seneca Partners, which is Hunter Biden, which, according to open sources, in particular the New York Times, is affiliated, is affiliated with Biden. The payment reference was paid was payment for consultative services. Okay. And so, and then this is also the time, if you remember, when they, when this all happened about the time that, uh, that, uh, that there was a prosecutor looking into the activities of Burisma, and Joe Biden, Vice President Joe Biden at the time, put the pressure on the Ukrainians to get rid of this prosecutor because he was about to expose the corruption that was going on within Burisma, which included his family. And in doing so, he was going to withhold $1 billion in funds that were going to be transferred to the Ukraine. And so, you know, this is, uh, we think that not only did he shut down, the, the, the prosecutor was fired, the case stopped, and then as uh, this it just went on, it appears to be pretty good evidence, I'm looking at it right here, that he received $900,000 to go on and forget about it. In other words, it's kind of like, okay, we took care of it just to make sure everything's okay. You know, here's $900,000. We have extra. Do you want you to take this and, and let's all be friends again? So am I off pace on that, Dave, or what do you think? Well, I, I don't have the uh, information in front of me like you do, but no, uh, you know, I don't think I could be surprised anymore about anything. And uh, the Bidens have always had a reputation of being crooks. And they are. And, uh, they are, yeah. But like I said, I just what I want to show is is where this you know where this information. I mean, what what is the real information? Because people don't know. Like I say, this is the information that people have told me. If they had known this, they would have never voted for voted for it. Even though I don't, I still think he won fraudulently. Yeah, I do know people who voted for him. There's quite a few. And uh, so uh, so, but let's uh, as we go through this, let's look. Now, okay, let's go back here first. I'm going to look at this. You know, let's kind of go off on the side here along the same lines. Let's look at Russia. Okay, where Hunter Biden received $3.5 million wire transfer, which has been proven from a Russian billionaire. And this Russian billionaire, her name is, I've heard of her, just been a long time since I heard her name. Uh, let's see. Find her name there. Elena Bocherina. And she was. There were some, we had ties to her on some big money cases that I was working with the El Dorado Task Force in uh, New York City with Homeland Security Investigations when I was in Russia. And, uh, and so 
I know that there were between her and a, and a guy by the name of Jana Bullock, and uh, who had taken an American name. She was a Russian that had had uh, come to the United States. There was there was a lot of money that was being stolen from the people, the government of Russia, and was being uh, laundered through various real estate deals in the New York City area. And so this is how I know her name. And so you know, just knowing that she's involved in a lot of criminal activities, which most oligarchs in Russia are. But uh, like I say, he received. Three point five million wire, three point five million dollars in a wire transfer from Ella Batrina, the richest woman in Russia, and the widow of Yuri Luzhakov. Luzhakov. I can't hardly pronounce them. I'm losing my Russian ability to speak these days. Former mayor of Moscow. Okay, so uh, this was uh, this was revealed in the uh, the Senate uh, investigation hearing, and uh, and you see that when I look at the way, this is what I found interesting though. Let's see, let me read this to you. This comes, the report reads, this is the Senate report, report between May 6, 2015 and December 8, 2015. Batrina said, uh, Batrina, the, uh, the suspected, the, the, the wife of the, Mos- of the, uh, of the Moscow mayor sent 11 wires in the amount of 391,000. Uh, another one, let's see, Nine of the transactions, so there's another one for 241000 Uh It goes on and on. And until it, it, it gets, so in other words, all this, all this money that was transferred to the Bidens, okay, it wasn't, okay, it wasn't a one, when I'm reading here, it was not a one-time transfer, which would, you know, immediately the banks have to, they're required to, to report this and all. And, and they have to also report anything over $10,000 in the way of transactions. They call it a suspicious activity report, SAR. And as required by law, and uh, they have people that work in banks. It's all they do. They look at these, t- these transactions. And uh, just a side note, we were trying to change that several years ago when I was still working to $50,000 because $10,000, this, this law was written 50 years ago. $10,000 back then was a lot of money. And uh, today, you know, it's about the equivalent of fifty thousand. We were trying to change it to that so there would be as many reports required to come in, but it would never got to Congress. And uh, but anyway, so if you look at this, we call this structuring. Everybody, I don't know if you, are you familiar with what, what structuring is, Dave? Not really. No. Okay, structuring is. Like I say the, the the banks are required to report. Like as I said, you know, any transaction that's suspicious over ten thousand dollars, and so. What we the the common term is smurfing. In order to get her under that, like what a person would do over a, like a, a three, say on a small scale drug dealer, they would have they would get they would have ten thousand or have fifteen thousand dollars. They need to get you know put into a bank so they can secure it. But what they do is they they put it in in increments: two thousand here, twenty five hundred there, and uh, and then on and on until you get to fifteen thousand. But the same they do it at the, at, the, at the upper levels as well. So. In this particular case, they knew for, you know, in this particular example, uh, the Bidens knew that, okay, this is, even though this is $300,000, $200,000 is, is to you, it means a lot of money. Over a period of several transactions, it doesn't seem like that much money. That's pretty common in the business world. But the thing is, what you're concealing is the fact that you're trying to hope that somebody in the uh, the banking industry uh, or, the, or the government doesn't see these transactions and realize, hey, that's $3.5 million. That's a lot of money. What the heck's that for? And so you see structuring, and you see not only do you see the structuring of the payments coming in, you see this going to all these different shell companies that uh, one, for example, is, let me pull the name up here, one of these companies, uh, 
they they ran thirty four million dollars through this thirty nine sorry they ran thirty nine million dollars to this company and they were called Back USA B A K USA they called it a startup technology company that mysteriously had thirty nine thirty nine million dollars paid into it and all of a sudden that company just says hey we're, that's a thirty nine million dollar loss we're closing the doors we're gone they couldn't find the money the money disappeared and so. You know, of course, all funds, electronic funds, are traceable until they turn to cash and come outside the bank. And so you look at this, I mean, this was, I mean, uh, there's a lot of people say, well, you know, there's no way they were they were laundering money. I don't know what else you could call it. And, uh, but what I see, is, is it my time to take a break so we can finish this up, or are we, are we still doing good? No, we need to uh, just watch our time. Uh, we, we missed the okay. quarter of break, so we'll just keep going until... Uh, <laughs> About just watch okay. your time. Well, anyways, I want to. I do want to make some points here. So you know, this is why I'm trying to show people, our listeners, why you need to be asking your your uh, your congressman and, and everybody that's involved in, in this. Whether you're a Democrat or Republican, this needs to be looked at. Now, what I'm looking at here, okay. Now, the the thing I just don't see, I don't see. Uh, what they call it an SUA, a specified unlawful activity. In order to make any money laundering case work, there has to be a specified unlawful activity that's that, that's designed that's that is stated in the actual uh, money laundering statute, and it's a list of, of different crimes such as uh, human trafficking, uh, drug trafficking. Uh, you know, you go on. It changes from time to time. Okay, and but it's specified. In other words, you have to be able to link that money to show that it's actual criminal money. So. That's the word, that's the thing we need to, that really needs to be just established, okay, was this actually money laundering? Well, it's not if you don't have the SUA, the specified unlawful activity, but at the same time, you see some very, uh, suspicious activity going on, and just because you don't, why would you be hiding that money if it wasn't illegally taken? Now, if, if Joe Biden did receive part of that, that money that was coming through there, if that, that $900,000 was in, which it was at the time, the allegation is that it happened and in 2014 when he was still the vice president of the United States, then that can definitely look at selling the influence and that is against the law. And, uh, there's, you know, definitely would have to be looked at in, in there. It's a, uh, it's an impeachable offense for sure. And, you know, if proven to, uh, uh, uh the, uh, the, uh, specific, uh, elements of the crime, I mean, then it could definitely could be a, uh, a, uh, felony offense. It, it definitely that much money needs to really be explained, and so I want to, as I say that I want to move on down here because I went ahead and last night I pulled up in the last couple of days I've been looking at this information, and, uh, and I'm looking at Joe Biden's tax returns that he claims that he and his wife Joe Biden have filed since 1998. So uh, how many here? One, two, 1998 until 2019. Okay, so if I look at these, I see in 1998, uh, the Bidens claimed that they made $215,000 in that year. Okay, it's all about to stay, uh, you go fast forward to 2004, they made 234000 okay. Goes up, then they made, uh, go up to 2008, 269000 On and on, then all of a sudden, in uh, 2013, comes up a little bit. I mean, he's making four hundred. he claimed 408000 uh, that year. Then, okay... 2016, okay, the year that he leaves office, okay, that year he has $396,000 that he they've claimed together, and all of a sudden it jumps 
okay, 2017 to $11 million in one year. $11 million, $11,037,751. Okay, year after that, they they make almost $5 million. Four, no, I'm sorry, $4 million. $4.5 million. And then in 2019, they're just right under a million dollars at $98,985,000. So what I'm trying to show, what, I'm, what this what this points out to me is that when you have a sudden influx of wealth, okay, it has to explain. And so they, they the Bidens did try to explain this. They said that, okay, well, we got this money through... Uh, uh, book bills and through uh, speaking engagements, and it actually breaks it down as how much they made. But I just find that hard to believe because, you know, he was not a popular guy. I know that there were three different book deals, but you'd have to really sit down and look at the contract. But, you know, that we call this co-mingling funds, okay? So, actually, so he probably did make some money off the books that he wrote. I don't know what that came out to. We'd have to sit down and really give, give an account in there and look at it. But all of a sudden, where do you explain this 14, you know, Fifteen million dollars. I mean, he didn't make that much money. You see where I'm coming from, Dave? How this this spike is just it's just it just sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Well, so does Biden. Okay. Yeah, and that's saying so. And so, when you look at this, I mean, does it? Uh, you know, does this not warrant an investigation? <laughs> I, I'm just curious as uh, when when you're a crook like he is, why did he? Why did he even file information that could incriminate him? Why not just, you know, stay with your, say, million-dollar income or, you know, whatever? Right. And so, but and here's and here's here's my suspicion. Okay, this is what I would if this is what I would be looking at if I were investigating this case. Okay, so he couldn't claim this when he's in the White House. I do know that he was four million dollars in debt just a few years prior to taking office, and so that, that debt's gone. And it was mostly on real estate that he owed money on real estate. And uh, so obviously he paid off that real estate. Don't know what he paid it off with. He paid off $4 million worth. But what he's claiming here, he tried to show this is $15 million that came from speeches and book deals, okay? Let's go back. Where'd you get the $4 million to pay off? We're missing $4 million. Where'd, you, where'd that come from to pay off your, 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 your house debt? I mean, how'd that come in? So... The, the net worth analysis on this, I mean, you have to really sit down, but it, it's just, when, the, when the net worth analysis is, is off by a large scale, then you've got criminal activity of some kind, and it's not that hard to check. And so I'm not saying that, that uh, I can't, you know, specifically say that, yes, they are guilty of this, but I, I guarantee you that, that there's a lot of things that there need to be explained. And the American people need to know this because this is a guy that's 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 calling all the shots. He's he's got he's got the electronic football. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Unfortunately, I do know what you're saying. But you know, yeah. Who would uh, would it be an IRS agent that would come along and say, "Hmm, this is really strange," and we need that, to investigate? Yes, that, no, they, that's one of their their major functions today. They. They got. I used to work a lot with IRS agents because they were so good. They're they're accountants with guns, is what they are, and they're really good at, in a money laundering case or a drug case with a lot of assets. And they have they have more authority than we did as far as getting tax information. And so, yes, IRS it would be good at that. And who would actually be better would be Homeland Security Investigations because you know that's that's one of the things that brought DEA to me all the time is that 
I had a lot of training in money laundering, and uh, and they would uh, they had a, you know a lot of cases going, but they would come to us to help them prove the money laundering, which really enhances the uh, the the sentencing and also allows you to take the assets, you know. And so, but yeah, it's a uh, it is a uh, all this all this information, you know. This is why I was talking about the voter remorse. I mean, people that are starting to learn this now, you know, saying, okay, we're not saying they they did it. Because nobody, but you know, but you have a witness that had no reason whatsoever, other than he was telling the truth, to come out with a number that makes sense. Okay, and uh, so you know, there's a lot of smoking guns here that really need to be looked at, and uh, especially before this next uh, this, the congressional election coming up in, in two years. And so, hopefully, the word's getting out there that, that people, you know, you need to start demanding to your uh, your people up, up in D.C. get to the bottom of this, you know. And so, uh, but I, like I tell everybody, the swamp is real. It's the real deal. And, uh, and if you watch all these proceedings that are going on, these Democrats weren't protecting Democrats and Republicans, the rhinos, they weren't protecting Republicans. They're protecting the swamp. They're protecting each other. And the, like I talked about before, you know, all that, that whole crew, if you've been up there over 10 years, then uh, you're probably a member of the swamp because it takes a lot of money to stay there and you have to have their approval. And so we talked about term limits, and, uh, and it, it, we definitely need term limits now, without a doubt. And, uh, and we need to, you know, those of you out there that, that only go and vote in the general election, you need to start getting out of the primaries, too, and start getting rid of these people that these Mitch McConnells and Nancy Pelosi that have been in there for 50 years. You know, we need to get rid of these folks because they're, they are destroying our country. One minute. All right, so... That's all I've got to say today, Dave. And so, you know, we'll uh, just real quickly. I'm I'm going to be out for a little while. I have to have some uh, some medical procedures done, but I, I'm hoping to get back here as soon as possible. And so, you know, keep your emails coming in, and I'll try to keep those answered. And and in the meantime, feel free to go back and listen to our pre-recording uh, programs <laughs> if you start to miss me that bad. <laughs> That's right. And uh, well, that's all I have for today, Dave. So. Well, you've done, you know, we, we certainly wish you well on uh, what, you, what you've got coming up. And right now I'm headed out to uh, get my COVID vaccination. Um, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. So take care, Sandy, <laughs> and we'll be thinking about you, pal. All right, Dave. I'm sorry, Dave. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.